All right, uh, today's scripture is going to be from Luke 18, 9 through 14. It should be on the screen if you don't have your Bibles. Luke 18, uh, 9 through 14. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying, to, to this, was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast, twice, I fast twice a day. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house unjustified, or justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Eric. Go on. Okay. Uh, if you're new, my name is Pastor Pete. I'm one of the pastors here with Pastor Goose, um, and we do this thing together. So, um, I have this sneaky suspicion. Are you ready? Um, if you're new here, we've been going through some parables of Jesus this summer. Um, but anyways, let's jump in. Actually, let me pray since... I think that's good, and then we'll get into it. Lord, I pray that you would speak in this place. There's a feeling in me, at least, that this may be difficult for some of us, hearing it, but that ultimately it would be full of grace and life and freedom, but that we'd be awestruck by the grace that you give and so, Father, we pray that we would focus our gaze upon you in this time and that we'd praise you because you are ultimately so worthy of it. So, do, would you do that which only you can do? And would you speak to us mighty and powerfully in this place? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I have a sense that many of you, uh, when you come to worship in this place particularly, that you identify with one of these three postures that you'll see on the screen. The first one is what I call the when is it over posture. You're here because usually your parents, maybe your friends or spouse or whatever have forced you to be here and you're just kind of waiting it for it to be over, right? And by the way, this is kind of a Western American kind of thing. You don't find this in other places. The second one is the where can I hide posture, right? You know the life that God wants you to live, but you can't or you haven't been able to do so, so you feel guilty, so feel so unworthy or, or your life is so difficult and you're angry and you're hurt so that you know you shouldn't be here because it's a place for those who believe and who want to believe and live the life that you're supposed to live. Where can I hide? And the last one is the just another Sunday posture. You're faithful. You serve in too many ways to count. You already know where you stand with God and you're just hoping the praise man will pick some good songs that you like and you're just hoping that the sermon is really good, hopefully one that you haven't already learned before and also that the people who are here, including the junior hires or whoever below you will just do what they're supposed to do and behave so you can get in and out of here in their allotted amount of time. Now I admit, the caricatures that I paint are a bit exaggerated, but if you're really being honest, if you keep it 100, they're not actually that far off. Surprisingly, this is also very indicative of the people in the Dominican Republic. I'll call it just DR from here on if I mention it. Everyone was either in the where can I hide or the just another Sunday types. The major difference in the DR versus here is the where can I hide types just simply didn't go to church. 
Because they were always saying that they weren't ready. They were always saying they couldn't give up the things that they knew that God wanted them to give up because they weren't pleasing to God or the church people, depending on who you ask. And as we discovered, the more and more and more we were, we were trying to explain to them, they were just sick and tired of being judged by the just another Sunday types in the church. No matter how many times or how much we try to explain to them that being a Christian wasn't about cleaning up your life so that you can be presentable to God, but rather that God takes us as we are, and as a result, we are cleaned up by spending more time with God. They were just adamant that they needed to clean themselves up first. And ironically, what ended up happening in the end is that they were getting frustrated. No, sorry, we were getting frustrated because we were trying so hard to speak to them, and they just wouldn't receive it. And then by the time that we left, I sensed that they sensed our frustration. And so then they were just being judged doubly all over again. Now, today's parable that Eric read for us speaks powerfully to this truth. And here's the crazy thing. I picked this parable before I left for the DR. It was reverberating around my mind as we got there. And for those of you who will hear what happened in the DR more in the next coming weeks, it might be the reason why things happened the way that it did. But here's the scandal. And as many of you know, if you've been here for the parable series, you know that there's a scandal coming with all the parables. It's supposed to scandalize you, right? And because you expect one, the scandal comes in verse 14. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, it says, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The results are flipped, as you can tell. Doesn't quite work out the way that our culture tells us it's going to work out. The Pharisee, the good one who does all the right things, didn't go home justified. And then the tax collector, the opposite, did indeed go home justified. Which means that if you are the where can I hide types in here, your soul ought to cry out, glory, hallelujah. And if you're the just another Sunday types willing to admit it, then you might need to rethink some or lots of things in your walk with Christ. And of course, for the people in the DR, this parable then speaks the hope for the where can I hide types. Indeed, the gospel they need to have in order to go to church. Let's continue to break down the parable because, again, I think there's a lot more to be said about that. The intended audience of the parable is clear, right? Jesus says it. It's for those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's the most apt description of a just another Sunday type if I know of one. So Jesus says, and two, went, two men went up to the temple to pray. By the way, went up to pray actually means more like went to worship. This isn't the early morning prayer type that we understand in the Korean church. This is what, not where you go to pray alone, but this is public worship where all of y'all are right now. Both men in this worship are praying out loud like many Korean adults like to do. Maybe this is where they get them from. And they're playing really loud, so loud that if you wanted to hear them, all you would have to do is just, and you'd be able to hear exactly what they were saying. Now, let me give the context of what all this is going on, because it's really important, okay? In Luke chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, this is the scene that Jesus is describing. He says this, Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service, Zechariah, right, before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude were in prayer outside of the hour of the incense offering. Okay, talking about Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, who happened to be a priest back in Luke chapter 1. Now, back in the days, right, I don't have a picture of you for you, but the temple was like an onion. You had layers. And the, the closer you got to the middle, the more holy it got, basically, right? And the most inner layer was the Holy of Holies, right? Is only where the high priest went in once a year during Yom Kippur to do all the sacrificial thing. And right outside the Holy of Holies was the holy place. That's where they called it. And that's what we're looking at today. And the holy place was where the priest would go in and burn incense, right? 
which acted like a symbol of all the prayers that the people were lifting up so they would rise to the heavens and God would hear their prayers. Just outside the holy place in this onion-like temple structure was an altar and that's where they sacrificed the lamb. Okay? And the lamb would be sacrificed and would be laid there after it was sacrificed for the sins of the people. And each day, right, in this time, there were two services, only two. Many services about the day, but only two services, one at dawn and one at 3 p.m., where the lamb would be sacrificed for sin. And then Jesus is describing one of these services in which the two men went up to pray. Now here, for a few more details, okay? They're important, I promise. Just like our service, there's an order to things. It's a, called a liturgy, it's a fancy term, right? We don't know all the details of the service, but here's what we do know, okay? At a service like this, at dawn at 3 p.m., first the lamb is prepared to be sacrificed, and then it's sacrificed. And they would take the blood and they would sprinkle it on the altar, and then they would offer up the lamb. Then after the lamb was offered up, everyone would then pray, followed immediately by trumpets. Think worship. It's what we do often. And then, the pray, and then the priest, right after the trumpet sound, would step to the door of the holy place. And then as soon as he got to the door of the holy place, right before he entered in, all the people would then pray. Or sorry, all the people would then sing the psalm of the day. And after the psalm of the day is done, then the priest would go in into the holy place, right? And then he would burn the incense. And then as soon as the priest would enter the holy place, the people would break out into loud prayer because this was the moment where their sins were uh, atoned for, forgiven, and then they could raise up their prayers and their prayers could finally be heard by God. And it's in this moment after the priest enters the holy place that they begin to pray. Now let's take a look at the two men. First, the Pharisee. The Pharisee is standing and praying Right? In our version, NASB, it says to himself or others say by himself, depending on your translation. But I think the best translation is by himself, as in apart from the others. The Pharisees praying close enough to be heard, but not close enough to be with them. Because as he said, they're the other people. By the way, the people back in the day, Pharisees, they had this mentality with sin that they thought sin was a disease. Right? That if you were sinful, then if you came in touch with people who were sinful, then you would get contaminated. So of course, he was trying to stay as far away as possible. Now, we know that he's standing by himself because if you listen to his prayer, you hear it all throughout his prayer. Focus on the pronouns. You'll see it on the screen. It's I, 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 I all over the place, right? I thank you that I'm not like the others. I fast twice a week. I tithe everything I get. I, 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 I. Now, I remember when I first looked at this parable about five years ago and I preached it for the first time to our congregation here, someone in the praise team, when I was talking about it, literally right after we read it, said, ew, so annoying. And that's kind of the feeling you get. But let's break it down a little bit more, right? Notice the comparisons the Pharisee makes in his prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like the swindlers, the unjust, or the adulterers or extortioners, depending on how you translate it. Now, before we get ahead of ourselves, all of those things are things you don't want to be. Nobody in here wants to be an extortioner. Nobody in here wants to be unjust. And nobody in here wants to be an adulterer. So those are things that we can be thankful for. But then he takes it next level. And then he says, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. For the purposes of this, I didn't ask him, I was supposed to, but John is our tax collector today. He's like, well, thank you that I'm not like John. God forbid. And then he goes deeper. I fast twice a week, pay tithes on all that I get. The custom for fasting back in those days was once a year on Yom Kippur. And this guy does it twice a week. If you do the math, 52 weeks in a year, twice a week, that's 104 times. He fast 103 more times than anybody else around. Talk about a holy Christian or a holy Jew in this case. The customary uh, thing tithing was for 10% on specific things like oil, fruit, and vegetables, but not everything. But here's this guy, 10% of all things. The picture that Jesus is trying to paint is really simple. He's painting a picture of a Pharisee, of a religious elite like me, or like Pastor Coos, or like our elders maybe. 
who's just completely missed the point. The lamb that was just sacrificed before he prays was for everyone's sins, including the Pharisees. But rather than understanding that the payment for his sin was just paid by this innocent lamb, he sees the moment as an opportunity to just rag on the tax collector who he knows is not a good person. And he does it through prayer. Like that's next level savage to me. Again, imagine we're in a circle praying out, praying really loud after the worship and someone like me who has a really loud voice goes, God, I thank you that I'm not unjust. I thank you that I don't cheat people out of money. I thank you that I don't cheat on my wife. And I thank you especially that I'm not like this fool John O over here who we all know is unjust, a swindler, and is cheating on his wife. That's the prayer. By the way, for all those people living in YouTube land, that's not true of John. It's just an example. I mean... Like, for real? Then let's flip the script and look at the tax collector real quick. The tax collector, like the Pharisee, has both seen the lamb slain for his sin and has heard the Pharisee's prayer, a.k.a. his insult rant. The tax collector, like the Pharisee, is standing at a distance but in a totally different type of posture. Scripture tells us that he was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Not a sinner, the sinner. See, the tax collector, he knows that he isn't worthy. He is indeed a swindler. He's indeed unjust and he's indeed an adulterer. He's probably thinking as the as Pharisee's praying, tell me something I and everyone else doesn't know already. The tax collector is a dirty and compromised and filthy man. Everyone knows this really well. So he cannot lift his eyes. The shame is too unbearable. He beats his chest, which is something that only women were known to do in those days, only when they were in extreme anguish, like when one of their uh, daughters or their sons die. And men were not supposed to do in those days what women did. It's degrading for them. Interestingly, the only time that beating of the chest is mentioned are for the followers of Christ who's at the foot of his cross when he dies and he, they can't handle the anguish of Jesus' death. And all the meanwhile, not being able to look up, standing at a distance, just doing this, he says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, don't give me what I know I deserve, which is death, though I am a sinner. God, make your wrath towards me that you place upon the lamb be satisfied by that death. For the tax collector knows that the wages of sin is death and the lamb just paid for it. So he's saying, God, let the payment that was just paid, let it be for me and let it be enough. Have mercy, please. And you know the story. God knows and God indeed does have mercy upon him. I tell you, this man went to his house justified, saved, justified, sins paid for, all good. Now I lied to you earlier. The scandal that I told you isn't actually the scandal. Here's the real one. If you're the way that I used to be, you're probably thinking, wow, what a story. God is so good and loving. Praise the Lord. Woo. Maybe you also read the second part, that the Pharisee didn't go home justified and thinking, good, sucker, serves him right. Got what he deserved. But maybe it's time to let the cat out of the bag or let the secret out. See, earlier when I told you the scandal, right, was indeed that the tax collector went home justified and then the Pharisee didn't go home justified. Most of you in this church, because all of you are so well-read and well-versed in the Bible, didn't really think that was scandalous. 
For the newcomers in here, you're probably like, oh, this pastor, he sucks. He doesn't know what he's talking about. That's not scandalous. That's just true. And we know that it wasn't scandalous because we all know that we're sinners. And we also know and we have preconceived judgments that Pharisees are sinners. Really bad, terrible, and hypocritical people. And so we in the story, when we hear it and when we listen to it, identify with the tax collector rather than the Pharisee. And so we're actually not shocked that the tax collector went home justified rather than the Pharisee. Because both got what they deserved or what you expected them to get. But what if, and this is where you need to listen, what if the scandal of this parable that Jesus is trying to present to us is that oftentimes or most oftentimes we fool ourselves into thinking that we are the tax collectors and not the Pharisee. And at this point, all of us would go, no, 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 wait, 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 I'm, well, I'm, not, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not the full, I'm not, I'm not like full-blown tax collector, Pastor Pete. Like, I mean, come on. But I mean, I'm not the Pharisee. Like, let's be real. Like, I'm not that big of a jerk. But consider this before you make any final judgments. And with apologies to the younger ones and the parents in here, some of the language in here is going to get a little bit graphic just because I think it needs to. When I was in seminary and I was uh, studying this, my professor introduced me to this writer called Robert Capone. And with this particular, in, in, in specific, in particular, he said that we, in order to understand this parable, we have to take account two very interesting scenarios, two exercises, he would call it, that would help you to understand. So we're going to go to them. Here's the first one. So knowing everything that you know, imagine this scenario or this exercise, okay? So imagine with me that the tax collector comes back the next week to the temple, or in this case, next week to the church. And every single one in here, John comes back next week. I apologize, John, but I love John, so whatever. So John comes back next week, and we all know that nothing in his life has actually changed at all. He's just as tax collector-y as he has been before. And tax collectors, as you know, are Jews who work for the Roman government, collecting taxes that Jews owe to Rome, but who also had the freedom to charge whatever it is that they wanted on top of however many taxes he was supposed to collect at any way possible. So tax collectors were regularly known for swindling people out of their money. They were therefore unjust. And almost every tax collector in the day was known to be very promiscuous with other women, whether they were married or not, and particularly for the married ones. See, the modern-day version of a tax collector, I think, is something that you might see in a movie. He's the guy that comes out of a limo at Vegas. He's dressed real fancy, real sleazy, right? You can kind of tell. Hair's all slicked back or whatever. You just kind of look like, ooh, it's kind of dicky. Sorry for the Korean. That's just kind of, ooh. He parties with a lot of expensive booze, and he's always got multiple scantily clad women, most likely call girls, all on his arms. Everyone knows. You know him. We all know him. His instant stories make him famous. And this guy then shows up to church. And after the sermon, Pastor Goose or myself preaches an amazing sermon. And during their prayer, they're standing off to the side, can't lift their eyes. They start beating in their chest and they cry out loud for everyone to hear, God, would you have mercy upon me, this sinner? I'm a sinner, have mercy. And then he accepts Christ right there and then. And we rejoice as a community because indeed, a sinner who was lost is now alive and found. Amazing, well said. But again, imagine that he walks in the following week, reeking of his alcohol, hairs all messy and all over the place, and we know everything that he was up to last night. 
In fact, we know everything that he was up to all week long. Because again, he's so stupid, he posts everything on his Insta stories, documenting every last thing he does. The same parties, the same booze, the same girls. And to top it off, he's still ripping us off, swindling and unjustly cheating us all out of our money. And then he has the nerve to walk into this place, stand off in a corner, and do the exact same stupid thing that he did last week, not looking up, beating his chest, and saying, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. How do you feel? But let me add one little extra scoop to this scandal. He, Jesus would declare, goes home justified. Now, how do you feel? Now, the second scenario, a little quicker, but just as important. This tax collector comes to church, not able to lift his head, beats his chest, cries out, God, have mercy. He's saved, he receives Jesus, he cries out, and everyone's all getting, we're celebrating, yada, yada, yeah, all the same as before. Then he walks out those doors, and the next week, everyone's interested on how his life is going to be changed. And so we keep track of all of his social media, and we understand Things have definitely changed. He didn't rip any of us off. He was actually fair, only collected what he was supposed to collect that week. He partied just once during the week. And the rest of the days, he went to small group and to prayer meeting. Woo! No girls, just a casual beer at the bar. The one party that he was at comes in. He's dressed real nice. No more sleazy talk. Looks real good. Looks the part. Sits right in the middle. Hands raised, praise be to God, the anthem of my heart. How are you feeling? All of us would probably look at that scenario and say, ooh, whoa, ooh, that's good. Like, so good, right? Like, the prayer worked, right? Like, you see the changes? Like, thanks be to God. PTL, praise the Lord, Woo! And in the prayer time, after the sermon, he begins to pray. And because we're all very nosy people, let's just be honest, we're really nosy. And we want to know how he's praying. We want to know how he's changed. And so he begins to pray. And rather than praying, you're kind of like, well, I kind of want to know what he says. You kind of listen in. Or you sneak a little closer. Or if you're like me, you actually sit like real close to him because you're really interested because you're kind of like that. I'm just really nosy. That's just kind of how I am. And he begins to pray. And he prays like this. Thank you, God, that this past week, unlike before, because you've helped me, unlike my fellow tax collectors who are so lost, who are so unjust, who are swindlers and adulterers, I didn't swindle anyone out of their money. I didn't treat anyone unjustly. I didn't cheat on my wife with other girls. I prayed each morning. I read my Bible. I went to small group and I gave offering even today. But a question for you. How is God supposed to respond to that prayer? How do you think he's responding to that prayer? Because let's be honest, you and I, we're thoroughly impressed. That's 180 degrees. Woo! Man. But is God supposed to be impressed at that? That he partied less? That he didn't mess around with people as much? He didn't take unfairly from people? Because we are naturally inclined to want to see this in this man. But, and you'll see it on the screen, read it carefully. 
If God was not interested or impressed with the list of the Pharisee, why would God be impressed or interested in the now changed list of the tax collector? There's a Christian author and a pastor in, in Canada um, named, by the name of Kim, Tim Challies, or Callies. And he writes this blog, and I want to read it to you in full. It's kind of long, but it will go by pretty quickly. And I think it nails it. And this is what he says. You won't, you won't see it on the screen. Just listen. Maybe you can even close your eyes and just listen. He says, I'm kind of a jerk. For as long as I've been able to think about myself, my heart, my life, I've known that I'm a sinful person. I've never doubted the reality of my depravity. And if there ever had been any doubt, being married and having children and immersing myself in a local church has provided all the proof that I and they need. But lately, I've been considering one simple and disturbing aspect of this sin. I'm better than you. At least, this is what I believe in most of life situations. I'm just plain better than you. Somewhere deep inside, I believe it's true. And too often I live and act like it's true. This is the old sin of pride, I suppose, the one we talk about so often but deal with so seldom, the one many people put at the root of all sin. And it's amazing to me how much of my sin comes down to it. I think I'm better than you. Too often, I'm just plain convinced of it. When you choose to go left, my heart judges and condemns you because I'm convinced it would have been better to go right. I don't have nearly all the information that you have and probably only half the wisdom, yet in my heart, I'm convinced that you have made a far, that I would have made a far better decision. No, sorry, you would have made a far better decision if only you would have asked me to guide you. Mm. When you lead your ministry, I have trouble following because I see all the things you are doing wrong, all the ignorant decisions you are making. I don't know about, uh, I don't know much about children's ministry or music ministry or evangelism ministry or whatever else it is that you lead, but still, I have it all figured out. Come chat and I'll be glad to set you straight. When you are given a privilege or responsibility, something that puts you in a position of trust or authority, I am certain that the privilege should have gone to me. I suppose you'll do okay, but I think we all know I would have done better. After all, just simply better than you. This thread, this conviction of my own superiority runs deep into the background of my life. If you're honest with yourself, you may well find that it's in your life as well. It matters. It matters because while God calls us towards Christ's likeness, we prefer to call others towards us likeness. God calls us to hold all things up to the light of his word while we prefer to hold all things up to the light of our own judgments and our own determinations. Ultimately, we all long for conformity to us rather than to Christ. This makes us useless, therefore, as counselors. We're useless counselors unless we can counsel from scripture and toward holiness rather than from our own arrogance and toward conformity to us. This makes us miserable because we're always convinced life would be easier and better if only others were more like us. This lessens our usefulness to God and his kingdom because we spend so much of our time lamenting all the things others are doing wrong rather than joining them in doing things their way. This increases our sin and hinders our holiness. I'm kind of a jerk. I know it. And still I have the audacity to want you to be like me. It's baffling. It's gross. It's sin. And it's pride. You see, Jesus, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, putoku and panefmata, the beggarly poor who without begging will die so poor. For theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of God. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Now, don't get it twisted. I'm not suggesting that our lives do not change after we receive salvation. Of course they do. 
I'm not suggesting that our lives don't change after we begin a relationship with God. Of course they do. I'm also not saying that it's okay to never be changed and just repeat the same old, same old, same old over and over and over again because we would know then it's not really authentic. But the truth of the matter is that we rarely recognize our poverty as a tax collector and therefore we rarely beg for God's mercy but are rather more inclined to stand on our righteousness, on our deeds, all the while cheapening God's grace that he had to die to give. Which means that in truth, as Jesus is suggesting in this parable, that if we haven't or aren't receiving God's grace, like the tax collector each and every single day, even as our lives are changing and becoming more like Christ. then unfortunately we are way more like the Pharisee than we would ever like to admit. If we receive grace, church, we are free, no longer condemned and given eternal life. But we must never, ever fool ourselves into thinking that we deserve it. Like grace is simple. That it doesn't involve a cross, a whole lot of pain, and a whole lot of blood, and a grave, and three days in hell, away from the only thing that our Savior, Lord Christ, had ever known in his trinity. All so much agony that it caused him to sweat blood. So church, won't you come to this place, and knowing that your sins have indeed been paid for, not just by a lamb, but by the lamb himself so that you will cry out, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner, because there's ever constant grace for you. And then in that freedom, praise. A moment of truth and admitting that I didn't want to do, but that I'm led to do as the praise team will come up and lead us in worship. If you don't know, I'm a sinner. Let's just get that out of the way. I struggle with a lot. All of you do. And if we're being honest for the DR team, for any missions team or whoever, whenever you go back to retreat or whatever, you come back and you think that you're never going to sin again. But the day after I came back, I fell into one of my personal and most agonizing sins. Two of them, sin of pride and the sin of lust. I hated myself for it. And then this thought dawned on me. What if I'm never going to be able to quite get rid of those things as much as I want? And at the height, and when I think I'm doing the best and most closest to Christ, those sins will entangle my soul because I need to be reminded that I'm a sinner. Because the truth of the matter is, if I'm being honest, lots of really cool things happen in the DR. I got to do a lot of really cool things and everyone thinks I'm great down there. I'm like a superstar in some ways. I got to preach. I got to counsel. I got to tell. They changed the rule at Mission of Hope because of me. So you come back home thinking that you're great. Coming back to this place thinking I'm going to preach this greatness that I have. 
And then I recognize that if I keep going this way, then I'll forget that God is good, that I'm saved by his grace, that I'm a wretched fool, that I need mercy more like more than anyone else, just like everyone else. And I feel like the sin sometimes it comes to remind me that I'm no good without him. That this is a place where the wretched come together in the presence of a holy God so that we can all become like him, spending time with him. My wife and I, our prayer in life is Psalm, um, Proverbs 31, sorry, 30, Agor's prayer. Lord, give me everything that I need, just as much as I need it. Lest if I have too much, I'll think you're not, that I don't need you, but if I have too little, I'll steal and I'll plunder. I think God knows that my pride, if I have too much of it, I'll pretend God isn't necessary and I'll leave him right. Smack where I want him to be. So church, no matter who you are, no matter what you do, no matter how old you are, what you serve, and whatever it is that you're into, will it indeed be every morning we wake up and say, thank you, Lord, for your mercies are new every morning, which means we need them to be new every morning. And then we'd come into this place barely able to lift up our eyes, pounding our chest and saying, God, would you have mercy? I need it. And then as we do, then we would have the freedom to lift it and to gaze upon his beauty who looks at us so wretched, but then indeed imbues in us, imparts within us his righteousness and his holiness so that we can be like him. I think that's the call every Sunday, every day. In truth, we're all meant to be the where can I hide types so we can avoid being the just another Sunday types. So as we sang, And we come knowing his grace makes us worthy. Just as we are. And then we're going to sing these two songs. Scandalous grace. And there's that part at the end where it says, all these things, but I'd be lost. I'd be lost. But here I am singing your praise. And after that, we're going to sing a song called I Am Set Free. And I pray that you, as the body of Christ, would sing it with everything you have because it embodies this tension we feel as wretched sinner and yet free saint. And then may this place be a place where the prayers and the worship rises up like incense. And God pours out his favor, not because we deserve it, but because he is who he is. And he bestows it upon us freely through his cross, through the grave, and in his ascension and promise to come back again. So church, would you join us as we sing the glories of who God is, and give ultimate praise unto his name. And so I invite you, no prayers this time, just rise. Would you sing with us as we lift our praises unto the Lord?